Chuck Swindoll once wrote a book about the Christian life with an interesting title, Three Steps Forward and Two Steps Back. Now, I think that that's an important concept for us to understand, especially when we talk about faith. You see, Satan would have us believe that if you falter and fall in the Christian life, that you're finished. If you doubt, you cannot be restored to faith. Or Satan will lull us into the opposite extreme of believing that sin doesn't really matter at all. You can live as you please. God's grace will cover you. But the Bible makes it clear <clears throat> that the Christian life is both a gift as well as a growth. As a gift, we're given salvation absolutely free of charge. Jesus paid all the price for that. God does not require that we earn our salvation by living a perfect life. But he does expect us to grow to maturity. And sometimes that growth can be three steps forward and two steps back. Over in 1 John chapter 2, the very first verse, the apostle John wrote these words, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What an awesome verse. Now, now we see this truth demonstrated very clearly in the life of Abraham. And the first section in the biography of this man is one of an amazing demonstration of faith. God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and Abraham believed him, even though he was old and his wife was barren. By faith, Abraham left his home, went to a place God was going to show him, even though he didn't know exactly where that would be or where he'd be going. However, in this next section of Genesis chapter 12, we read that Abraham experienced a relapse of faith. This brave pioneer of belief became the model, the example of doubt. And Abraham had taken three steps forward. But now, as we're going to see, he takes one giant step backwards. So I want to examine the Bible, what it says about this. And then I want to apply some lessons about what we should do when our own faith falters. First, I want you to consider Abraham's dilemma. He had settled in the land of Canaan, and once he got there, he began to experience some problems. Verse 10, Genesis 12, tells us what it was. Now there was a famine in the land. And once again, as you will find out, all of us have found out if we've lived a while, you walk by faith, but that does not exempt you from difficulty or hardship. Nowhere does the Bible say if you will trust, just trust God, that you'll always be healthy, that you'll always be prosperous, that all your children will grow up to be academic All-Americans, that your favorite basketball team will always win. Does it say that? Scriptures have nothing to do with those kinds of things. On the contrary, we're told in the Bible that in this world you're going to have tribulation, Problems. We're told that rain falls on the just and the unjust. We're told that tomorrow we'll have sufficient trouble, so just don't worry about it today. It's coming. The Bible couldn't make it clearer. 
that faith does not exempt you and me from struggle. All you have to do is just sit there quietly and think of all the things that you've been through and I've been through just in these last few years. Challenging times. Mm. But Abraham did exactly what God had instructed him to do. And when he arrived in Canaan, he suddenly experienced a horrible famine. No rain. Crops didn't grow. Sheep were getting thin. And he could see no relief in sight. I like what Charles Stanley once said. When God is silent, there's only one reasonable option. Just hang in there and trust him. He may be quiet, but he's not quit on you. But Abraham grew uh, restless, which leads to our second point, a, a terrible decision. Abraham's decision. And so in Genesis 12, 10, we pick up the narrative. Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now, we don't understand the necessary context there, but nowhere does it say in the text that God instructed him to go to Egypt. It was his idea. I think he began to doubt along the way that God was not going to take care of him. Famine can, can really, really discourage you. And so he just took matters into his own hands I mean, after all, everybody was going to Egypt because that's where the water was. That was where the Nile River was. J. Vernon McGee points out that in the Bible, Egypt almost always represents uh, the world around a believer or a Christian. The world draws the Christian away. The world promises a better, easier life. But when he arrived in Egypt... Abraham made a terrible decision. Verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, he should have stopped right there. That would have really been helpful, but, you know, he didn't. He said, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. Now ponder that a moment. I mean, we men understand and we've discovered it's, it's, it's not always an advantage to be married to a beautiful woman. And all the men said, Amen, amen. That's what you're supposed to say. Here's Sarah. She's attractive. And uh, I mean, this, this should have been a real source of encouragement to many women because Sarah was 65 years old at the time. Now, people in that time lived longer. Things were changing. I know some of you can't wait to 65, so you'll be beautiful. I know that. I know that. But, but here's, the, here's the case. Here was Sarah, 65 years old, very attractive, and Abraham could foresee what might happen. And so he said to her, in a sense, honey, when we get to Egypt, and these guys recognize how beautiful you are. And when one of the leaders is going to want to add you to their harem, and that would put my life in jeopardy. Who is Abraham thinking about here in this account? Now, here's an absolute truth. When a believer gets involved in the world, he or she is always in a very slippery place. Charles Oswald Sanders said, disbelief always brings complications to your life. 
So what looked like to be a simple, from a guy now, from a guy's perspective here, what looked like to be a simple temporary solution for Abraham suddenly got real complicated. You know, the Bible talks about becoming entangled in sin. And sure enough, he got to Egypt, he got entangled, and so he did what most would do in that situation. He practiced deception. That's our third point in Abraham's journey here. Abraham's deception. Listen to what he tells his wife to do in verse 13. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Now, you're tracking with me? Are you picking up on how easy it is here to be deceptive, you know? What is it? The check's in the mail. You ever heard that? Check's in the mail. Officer, my speedometer has been off. I would love to come to your child's recital, but, but I have a funeral next year. That's my favorite one there. Uh, I love grits, really. I'm just full. We've all done it. As someone has said, a lie is an abomination to God, but a very present help in time of trouble. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we human beings have struggled with deception. And Abraham lowered himself to deceit in order to save his own skin. That's what's so tragic about this. And he said, if one of these Egyptians shows an interest in you, Sarah, just tell him that you're my sister and everything will be fine. And I get it, that may be okay for, for Abram, but what about Sarah? Now, to be fair, let's add context to this. Sarah really was Abraham's half-sister, but she was also his wife. Now, regardless, here's a man referred to in the New Testament as a man who was God's friend, this man of faith. And what has he done? He stoops down to this cowardly lie and willing to sacrifice his wife's virtue in an act of self-preservation. Have you ever thought about how honest the Scriptures are about the human predicament? The Bible tells the truth. And we're presented as human beings exactly as we are, warts and all, sins and all. And I think maybe the reason for that is so that we will come along this journey recognizing how badly we all need a Savior, how we need someone that will cover our sins. Anyway, it may surprise you to learn that Abraham's deception worked well temporarily. Verse 15 says, When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. And he treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram required sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and men's servants and maid servants and camels. And everything apparently was going well for Abraham on the surface. His life was spared. Pharaoh gave a very generous dowry to, to have Abram's sister, as he's thinking. And he got a lot of possessions out of the deal. But always understand, material success is never a real good thermometer of our spiritual condition. We live in the most prosperous country, I guess, in the world. You see, adversity doesn't mean God is displeased with you, and prosperity doesn't necessarily mean God's pleased with you. The rich man in Luke 12 had so much stuff that he had to build extra barns to hold everything, and Jesus called him a fool for not sharing it and giving it away to others. 
And I think deep inside, I think Abraham had to have experienced some kind of mental anguish here because he was accepting all this stuff under false pretenses. His conscience had to be bothering him. He was separated from his wife. He was, had to be lonely because he, he had to be thinking how stupid this whole thing had to be. He had to be concerned. Now, by the way, the Old Testament book of Esther gives us a little insight here about this. Uh, there was, it says it's a period of waiting before becoming a wife of a ruler. And Pharaoh had not yet taken Sarah to be his wife. So here God is again protecting her through Abraham's uh, stupidity here. And, uh, and, and Abraham's got to be thinking now. His conscience has got, he's got to be getting around to the point where he's in to he's saying, I can't enjoy this prosperity I can't, you know, without any concern for my wife. And beginning with verse 17, we now move to what we're going to call Abraham's deliverance. The Bible says the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summons Abram and says, what have you done to me? See, he's figured it out. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Now, it's interesting here. The Bible doesn't say that exactly how Pharaoh put two and two together. We don't get that information. But somehow he did. And Abraham was put in the uncomfortable position of being exposed as a liar. And look at what Pharaoh says to him. Now then, here's your wife. Now, you must have had her brought in there. Here's your wife. Take her and go. And then the next verse is nuts. It's crazy. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. Now, this is a surprising verse of Scripture. I mean, wouldn't you have expected it to read? And Pharaoh executed Abram for being such a butthead. Though it's hard to translate butthead from Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> but he didn't say that. You know, he, he did, the Bible doesn't say Pharaoh sent Abraham out of the country and kept his wife. He didn't say anything. Somehow God has protected both Abram and Sarah. And not only were they released untouched... But Abraham was allowed to take with him all the cattle and all the riches that he had accumulated while he was there. You know what's interesting? This actually is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen hundreds of years in the future. When the Israelite slaves come out of Egypt and they take with them an amazing amount of wealth. But the point here is only divine intervention could have turned this potential tragedy into triumph. Now, there are three lessons I want you to take with you today. Number one, a person of faith will be tempted to do wrong. A person of faith will be tempted to do wrong. When the pressure was on, Abraham was not only tempted to lie, he just flat out did it. And there's never going to be a point where you and I have so much faith that temptation will have no attraction to us. Regardless of how strong your faith in God may be, there are going to be times that you find this world very alluring, especially if you're younger. Egypt will look logical to you. Lying would seem wise. Impurity would maybe seem advantageous. Even our Lord Jesus had to struggle against temptation from the moment he was baptized in the Jordan to all the way to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And having a strong faith in God will not exempt you from the appeal 
of our modern Egypt, this old world we live in. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. You see, this side of heaven, none of us will ever reach the point where we have such a strong faith that this world will not draw us. And it may be other sins of the flesh. It doesn't have to be what Abraham did. It could be a lousy attitude. It could be, you know, maybe you have problems with truth-telling in other ways. Maybe giving your all to your employer. Being good neighbors. There's so many other things that can jump in here. A lot of sins of the flesh. But whatever it is, you're going to have to battle it. i got to have to battle it all of our days. Because these desires war against our soul. Satan never rests. So a person of faith will be tempted. But that's not all. Second lesson is a person of faith will also fall. Abraham was not only tempted to sin, he did sin. And this is important to remember when we judge ourselves and others. Sometimes we uh, hear or see Christians having moral failures and we just kind of dismiss them as just being phony. And we, we say sometimes, well, if they were really real in their faith, then they would never have done that. And if we'd been back in Abraham's time and witnessed his lie, we would probably have written him off too. We never have believed he would one day be called a pioneer of the faith. You know, when a parent encourages a, a, a 10-month-old child to walk, the parent knows before the child takes one step what's going to happen. They know the little rascal's going to fall. I'm sorry, the little darling's going to fall. And when it happens, you know what the parents, they never say, oh, darling, I'm so sorry that you fell. We're going to take you back tomorrow and exchange you for a little child because we cannot have any children in our house that fall down. I'm not, I'm not giving you any ideas now, hopefully, but, but I mean, we wouldn't act that way. No, we would tell them, not, don't give up. You know, you got to get up. you got to try again. Because we expect a young child to stumble and fall. Now, over time, we expect it less and less. But something's seriously wrong if it's still happening as they grow older. Now, here's the point. When you and I become Christians, we were born again into God's family. And because we're human, it's inevitable that we're going to fall. But over time, we ought to grow to the point where we're falling less and less and less. 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, a person of faith will be tempted and a person of faith will fall. But keep in mind lesson number three. A person of faith can recover. Abraham was given another chance, and he made the most of it. He would ultimately be remembered as the father of the faithful. Now, maybe this morning we're talking to someone, of course, either here or maybe watching from home. If, if, uh, if we're honest, we may be talking to somebody who's 
hanging out in Egypt right now. They're going where the, the, uh, the resources are and the benefits are. And, and uh, we're not necessarily walking by faith. We have relapsed. Maybe in our wake we've left unpaid taxes or broken wedding vows or disillusioned family members or broken-hearted church friends. And we wonder, is there ever any hope for recovery? Well, the story of Abraham offers you encouragement. I hope it does. Jesus is calling you back. Listen to what Abraham did to recover. Genesis 13, 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt. <laughs> he got out of Egypt. And the first thing he got to do is to repent. And what repentance means is a change of direction. You've been going this direction. It's not taking you where God wants you. But the word repent means now you're doing about face. That's literally what it means. It's a military term. And now you're going a different direction, another direction. Genesis 13, 3 says, he went then from place to place. He got up out of Egypt. We saw that. He left Egypt. And now he went from place to place until he came back to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier. You know what he did? He went back to the place he had worshipped God. Verse 4 says, And when he had first there he, where he first built an altar, and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. He went back to where he'd worshipped previously. He went back to where he and the Lord were, were connected in a, in a stronger, more effective, powerful way. I love what Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, as the Lord speaking to the, to the church. He said, I hold this against you. Uh, you have forsaken your first love. And he told those Christians in that day, he said, Remember the heights from which you've fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. You start getting back to church regularly. You get back into the Scriptures. You have fellowship with Christian people so you can have accountability and be restored. And remember the attitude of our Heavenly Father that He has towards us. Satan will point out our failures, but God always points to our future. Jeremiah 31, 34, he says, For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Focus on the blessings. Maybe it wasn't for that failure. If it wasn't for that failure, you would not be in the teachable place you are today. You may not have that teachable spirit. You may not have the sensitivity to people. You may not have the sensitivity to a message like this. But God is calling you back. You see, a person of faith is going to be tempted, and a person of faith will certainly, certainly fall. A person of faith can be uh, recovered. They can recover. But hear this last phrase. It's just simply better never to fall at all if you can avoid it. You see, what I don't want to do with this message is leave you with the impression that sin doesn't matter because it does. Everybody falls, so don't, don't let it bother you. That's not what I'm saying. Everyone sows their wild oats. Well, that, that wild oats, that's just normal. But the experience of Abraham ought to teach us all something, that sin leaves scars. It leaves marks on our life. Every sin can be forgiven of its eternal consequences. But we often have to live with the earthly blemishes. David said, I want to build 
the temple. Remember King David? He said, I want to build this temple. And though God had forgiven him for his adultery, he said, you know, when you killed Uriah the Hittite and took his wife, you shed innocent blood. And David, he said, it's not going to be you that builds my temple. It's going to be your son Solomon instead of you. So, so we can't leave this. I don't want you to leave this event that we've been talking about without considering the, the consequences of Abraham's sin. And probably this is one of the most important parts of the whole message. First, he brought dishonor on God's name in Egypt. He may have left in wealth, but he left with a horrible witness. In Genesis 20, we find that Abraham then repeated the very same transgression. I mean, now think about this. <laughs> he went before another foreign king. His name was Abimelech. And he lied about Sarah being his sister again. I mean, it's sad. Well, once a sin is committed, you know what happens? It's easier to commit it the second time or the third. Someone has rightly said, you sow a thought and you reap a deed. You sow a deed and you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. And you sow a character and you'll reap a destiny. Abraham did it again. And he had to live with that weakness in his life and his witness. But, but there's another more serious result of Abraham's uh, sin, his lie. And that is how it affected his children. Remember the passage in the Old Testament that says that uh, the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the uh, third and fourth generation. One of the scariest Bible verses in, that I ever, I ever have read when you think about it. Now, I'm not sure that means if you sin, God's going to one day come down in a few generations and zap your grandkids. But here's what I think it means. It means your children have a way of imitating the evil in your life and even magnifying it. And I want you to listen to Genesis 26.1. Scene is very familiar. Now, there was a famine in the land. Besides the earlier famine in Abraham's time, and Abraham's son Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now you jump down to verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. I wonder where Isaac got that idea. Of course, he wasn't even alive when Abraham did what he did. But growing up, I'm sure you heard about it. And parents, we have to be real careful about glamorizing our escapades of the past because there are eager ears who may want to follow in, uh, in your steps. Jacob's son, or Isaac's son, Jacob. <laughs> now, that's the, the next generation. He lied about his identity, and he stole the birthright from his brother Esau. Then Jacob's son lied to him about the whereabouts of his brother Joseph. Yet the sins of Abraham were forgiven by God, but he was visited on the third and fourth generation. Wow. 
So I'm saying to you folks today that there's something better than going to Egypt and coming back. <laughs> there's something better than the prodigal son, you know, going to the fall country and, and uh, coming back. Yeah, the best thing is, is that they stayed home to begin with. Maintain a right relationship with the Father. In the New Testament book of Jude, this little book at the back of your New Testament, there's verse 24. Unto him who is able to keep you from falling. We should be devoted to God because he has the ability. He has, through his Holy Spirit, the capacity to change the way we think about life and, and the decisions we make. Salvation is offered to us, not just to, to rescue us from you know, moral failure, but it's there to prevent us from falling in the first place, which is why we need a perfect heavenly father because our earthly fathers were imperfect. And I want to encourage you to put your faith in that perfect heavenly father because he'll never fail you. He won't let you down. And keep in mind, a person of faith will be tempted. A person of faith will fail. But a person of faith can recover. But it's better if they've never fallen at all. But praise God for his mercy and his grace. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have taught us through history. And you've taught us not just through biblical history, but the life that we live here on this earth. You remind us day in and day out the terrible consequences of evil and sin. And Father, please forgive us when we get so comfortable hearing about it and watching it and being a part of it so much of the time that it doesn't make any difference anymore. We don't, we don't feel any regret or remorse. Help us, Father, not to become numb to the ways of this world because this world is not our home. And the ways of this world are not to be the ways of a citizen of your kingdom. And so, Lord, help us learn as we journey through this uh, series of lessons on faith and to see these real characters going through the battle uh, to be faithful, even when the temptation is so strong to do otherwise. Help us come faithfully to the Scriptures to get the blueprint we need to live the life you've called us to live. And I thank you today for your being with us and for those that are watching at home and others that, are, others that may be tuning in, we thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity to have a real live object lesson laid before us from the pages of Scripture. Now let us take our lesson home with us. In Jesus' name, amen.